0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilden Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world.
0: Hello, this is Thomas Thurston with the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance and Abolition, and I'm talking to Elena Shi, who is a visiting fellow here. Elena is an assistant professor of American Studies and Ethnic Studies at Brown University and a faculty fellow at the Brown Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice, our sister organization there at Brown. Yes. So, tell me, Elena, what brings you to New Haven?
2: I am so lucky to have a one-month faculty fellowship here at the GLC to work on my book, which is tentatively titled Fair Trade Freedom, Moral and Political Economies of Human Trafficking Rescue in China, Thailand, and U.S. It's kind of a mouthful, so maybe some of what I'm working on this month is shortening the title, (laughs) but mainly I'm using the time uh, to be on leave and to Finish up uh, a new chapter that I'm working on that looks at uh, the experiences of victims of trafficking after they've left rehabilitation programs in Beijing and Bangkok.
0: Well, it's been great having you here, and uh, but let me ask you, how did you become interested in, in this particular subject?
2: I was an Asian Studies and Women's Studies major at Pomona College, and in 2003 was fortunate to have a wonderful... Uh, legal... St- Internship at the Asian Pacific American Legal Center. Uh, 2003 was one of the first years that the United States began offering T visas, which was a special category of trafficking visas introduced through our 2000 Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which I see is the origin point of a lot of anti-trafficking activism within the United States. Right. 2000 was a key cornerstone moment. So I worked with APALC on um, legal intake counseling for uh, people who were Mandarin speaking. And we worked on seeking a variety of um, visas for people escaping victims of domestic violence under VAWA provisions, but then also uh, the, the trafficking visa. And I thought what was so interesting about that experience is that the visa required a very, very strict um, testimonial of people to claim victimhood in their experiences. You have to make their case. Exactly. Um... But in interviewing all of these migrant workers, nobody talked about their experiences in the kind of extreme victimizing language that the policy required. And so I was really interested in that ongoing disconnect between policy and its implications in practice. I later received a Fulbright after I graduated to move to China and work at a similar legal aid organization in Beijing and there i once again found these disconnects at this at this time now in in the chinese setting a disconnect between The international language of what we were calling human trafficking and what Chinese lawyers, um, migrant workers, NGO workers, activists, uh, what they wanted to talk about on the ground. So rather than use the language of trafficking, they wanted to talk about migrant worker disputes, labor rights, sexual harassment in the workplace, things like that. And so that led led me on like a ten plus year journey back to grad school, answering a lot of these same questions, addressing the incompatibility between global frames of human trafficking and what that means for people in various local settings.
0: And so you kind of settled on 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 looking, doing field work and looking at specific instances in in Thailand and uh, in China. Could you just say more about your field work and and how? how you go about doing
2: that. Yes, absolutely. I received my PhD in sociology from UCLA. So I was trained as an ethnographer, and specifically a global ethnographer. So somebody trained to look at different social phenomena through different related global sites. And in my first year ethnographic methods course, I was really interested in these anti-trafficking fairs that had popped up around Southern California. And so I did a lot of my fieldwork practice trying to understand what was happening at these anti-trafficking fairs. In these fairs, identified different organizations that were oftentimes selling products that they claimed to be made by victims of trafficking throughout the world. Uh, I was very, very drawn to two organizations that were selling jewelry made by trafficked people in Thailand and China, and spend the remaining seven to eight years of grad school working between sites of activism and consumption of this jewelry in the United States, but then also seeing how they corresponded to the sites of jewelry production in Beijing and Bangkok and I had a really growing investment in the lives of women workers who had left sex work to become jewelry makers. And my book is really interested in seeing how these global programs that aim to stop human trafficking actually impact the lives of people that they claim to serve. So uh,
0: could you say a little about the uh, nonprofit organizations that were uh, running these uh, these programs uh, in Thailand and, and China that were how they were they the same organization, or did they offer uh, uh, come from different groups and how how did they differ from one another?
2: I was so amazed that uh, back when I found these organizations in two thousand and seven that uh, neither of them were aware of the other's existence. So they were completely independent organizations that had American organizations that had both come to jewelry making as a way out of sex trafficking. And ultimately, as I spent more time with them, I learned um, that it was because these organizations were drawn to this work, to the work of anti-sex trafficking and sex trafficking rescue, at a fairly deep-seated Um, moral reprehension towards sex work. These are Christian groups? and Yes, and so I failed to mention that these two that I happen to study, though not exclusively all anti-trafficking organizations that have done this work, happen to also be Christian organizations. And so definitely an element of their work in China and Thailand um, also revolves around different forms of religious proselytization, but also in uh, vocational training. And so there's an incredible duality. These organizations toe the line between at once being nonprofit organizations in the United States, but also being registered as formal businesses in China and Thailand because they need to be able to run their businesses. They need to be able to ship their jewelry to the United States um, and have a fairly robust system of commerce that serves some of their more um, public or social good causes and so in that sense they're no different than the growing number of what we're calling social entrepreneurships that are emerging um, to deal with social problems
0: and the uh, the women that work in these organizations are they do they f- go out and find them and bring them do they they're paid a, a salary i assume or how does that Operate.
2: participants in the program are identified through weekly or biweekly outreach in red light districts in Beijing and Bangkok so activists will go out and will seek out women will often in in Thailand if they're going to go go bars where Thai, where Thai sex workers are dancing say they will buy their time um purchase you know call them off stage by number and ask them if they're interested in alternative employment opportunities making jewelry And it is a really uh, difficult economic choice that these sex workers need to make because they oftentimes take a pay cut of a third to a fifth of what they formerly earned as sex workers by taking these jobs
0: but they decide uh, the ones who take them have do they have their reasons for doing this do you interview the women themselves and do you have a sense of what their stories are yeah
2: absolutely so because my work is ethnographic i s- would spend over the course of 3 summers as i spent time in Beijing and Bangkok i would spend about 4 hours each morning making jewelry with the workers to mm-hmm. get a sense of what the re- labor relations were like to get a sense of what their lives were like you you know learn an incredible amount sitting around the table uh, working making jewelry but I I would also then on weekends accompany workers as they went home, um, to their hometown and got a sense of what the um what their family lives were like, what their stories, what their entire life migration histories were like. But then I would also spend an additional four hours each day. Um, participating in activist work with the the American activists, um of who with whom I shared far more similarities on the basis of um, American citizenship, my educational status, my mobility, things like that. And so, Um, The process of fieldwork was difficult because I always had to find some balance between these really, really different perspectives and learn that uh, women absolutely were making a calculated choice to come there. Um, I think most fascinatingly, Some had described the programs, the vocational training programs to me, as retirement strategies Mm. for exit from sex work or when they enter into long-term relationships and no longer want to do sex work uh, or where they become pregnant. And so it is absolutely seems to be a calculated choice for people to leave jobs as sex workers to become jewelry makers, although ironically, the language around which this jewelry is sold in the United States, namely as a quote-unquote slave-free good or something that is made by a victim of human trafficking, is intended to suggest that they have no decision-making power or or definitely no agency in this.
0: So, I mean, you describe this as vocational. Are they training these women to to go from this program into the some kind of broader jewelry-making trade, or is this kind of their last stop working at this, uh, at this uh, uh, factory or whatever?
2: That's a great question. Early on, both organizations had a very discreet vocational training component to their programs. The one in China would actually pay the tuition for workers to go learn computer skills or English language classes or um, business strategy. And what they found was that after taking these classes, the local economy had no way of rewarding this kind of vocational training. So they would end up, you know, oftentimes they did not have more than a middle school degree, they would end up facing the same employment prospects that they had going in. So so both organizations have since um, abandoned these more concrete forms of vocational training in the service of finding another job, and instead have Taken a pretty strong stance that they believe this kind of jewelry making is the ultimate vocation. Unfortunately, it, revol- it it requires extreme amount of transnational brokering between these activists and then the consumers in the United States who have to um, who, who need to buy the jewelry in order to. Support the organizations, and across this brokerage is where some betrayal lies, <laughs> and I would say that that betrayal comes across through marketing, victim stories, mm. um, in particularly extreme or exceptional ways that workers themselves don't don't necessarily see, and I would say that. Um, the problem that this causes for the human trafficking movement at large is that it goes on to, in policy, create the same gory, sensationalist, ec- exceptional categories of victims, in particular victims of sexual exploitation, and what this means is that the anti-trafficking movement to date has consistently focused on victims of sexual exploitation, ignoring victims of non-sexual labor exploitation, but also ignoring the rights of sex workers who choose to to work in that industry.
0: Could you say um, a little about um, uh, the—here in the the United States and these uh, jewelry— the the jewelry fairs that you talk about from what you've described to me in the uh before it they sound a little like an amway uh party or, or or something like that could you just uh give our listeners a sense of what these are like
2: yeah um they are much of this jewelry is sold through what are called in-home jewelry parties where Individual um, people, oftentimes they are women themselves, will buy like a jewelry uh, party sample kit online. It this this comes mailed to your home and has detailed instructions of how to display jewelry. Has some catalogs, has an order form, and has an organizational DVD. Tells you exactly what you need to do to create the environment conducive to hosting this kind of sale. And people really. Um, they they gain a lot emotionally, sometimes spiritually, from participating in these. They invite a group of friends over uh, in a really casual environment. They turn the living room into, at once, like a social awareness building party, but also a place for commerce. Mm-hmm. And so what often happens is you'll screen the organization's DVD, you learn about some of the horrors of what they call human trafficking in different parts of the world, and um, you're left... Um, with the solution in front of you, which is to open up your pocketbook and, quote-unquote, buy for freedom and buy some of the jewelry that is positioned um, around the room. And I think these are absolutely modeled after 70s-style Tupperware parties that really focused on um, American entrepreneurship and, in particular, a brand of female entrepreneurship – For housewives who weren't working outside of the home. And so in this sense, I see a really interesting kind of shared sisterhood (laughs) that people are trying to create across, you know, between like Culver City, Los Angeles, and um, the Thai-Burma border. They'll say, we're all just women trying to make money and participate, you know, and and be connected. Did you
0: have, so you had, Kind of experience this side of of the the, the, uh, the business uh, in a sense uh, before going uh, to to Thailand and China. Did you did the women there have any idea about how their stories were being presented? And uh, did you ac- meet any of the kind of people that were being uh, that were being uh, used as examples, or were these kind of composite stories that they were creating?
2: I was uh, very, very optimistic about jewelry as transformative when I first saw how these products were being portrayed in the United States. And that was mainly because when I was in China, I had worked with artists on a range of different social movements advocating for ethnic minority and migrant works on the border. And so when I came back to the United States for grad school, I was really looking for different examples of what, what I saw to be cultural activism, and when I saw this jewelry, I was very, very optimistic that there was some potential for like creative creativity or therapy through you know the the creative process. And I was a little bit surprised when i um got to the so-called shop, jewelry shop floor in both places to see how uh, rote this jewelry-making process really was. And almost all of these workers did not consider this to be a form of rehabilitation or rescue. Sure. They just considered it to be another job. And so in, in China, less almost the, the workers don't speak English, and so they don't read English, so they often don't have a sense of the material that's, that's describing their lives. Um, and in one particular research encounter, uh, I remember sitting around the table and workers asking me to translate the material that was used to, you know, (laughs) describe their lives. And as I read the aloud the story of somebody who the organization had called Xiaoli, it became apparent that... um, all of the workers around the table were really uncomfortable with this story. And I later learned it was because they felt it was a mass amalgamation of different um, challenges they had each faced growing up in rural farming communities. But Nobody identified with the absolute sense of despair that the marketing material had provided. In Thailand, more workers can uh, speak, understand, and read English, maybe not to the level that they are writing about in these materials, but they absolutely have a sense of how their lives are being portrayed. For the most part, people don't feel a betrayal if they, for instance, are feeling that they're getting paid um, appropriately. And so there the disconnect comes up or the sense of betrayal comes up when they'll see that this necklace, this pearl necklace that they made is being sold for 75 US dollars but that they're still getting paid the equivalent of the local minimum wage. So that's where some difficult questions arise. Um, and it's a tension I think that social enterprises, fair trade organizations have to deal with in general.
0: Now you, and you're looking at at groups in in Thailand and in China which are very Distinct uh, economies and political systems. How did I mean, what was the difference between those two? How did the the role of the state figure in this and uh, and that sort of thing?
2: I was really drawn to these two cases because I was mentored by a political sociologist who said it would be great if you set up your research design to have China, which is a more authoritarian, state-controlled um, case, and then Thailand, which uh, is more of a democratic, free. Uh, free market monarchy. And uh, in many cases, yes, China and Thailand are very, very, very different. But I think one important takeaway of this project is that the potency of the anti-trafficking movement to date, its global value, has made it so that there really weren't that many differences at the end of the day in the lives of workers. Um, and on a minute level, I absolutely think that the organization working in China had to absorb... Uh, many different aspects of Chinese state repression. So they had to lock the door of their shelter. Sometimes they were very, very concerned that the you know the government would censor them in some way because at once they were um, an American organization. They were an American organization working in prostitution, which is illegal, and they were a missionary organization. So sort of three strikes against them. Whereas in Thailand, there is an environment much more open to international NGOs, very open to foreign missionary presence. So in these ways, um, the, the workers working in China had less opportunities to articulate their own, you know, identities as workers outside of the organization, where the workers in Thailand did. But I would say, overall, an interesting takeaway is how strong this movement is able to be in both places. And that's not something that you see with other human rights causes, particularly when you look at China, that is like a notoriously anti uh, international human rights record—they they do not do well sure. um, taking pressure from transnational or international entities telling them how to deal with their own problems. But human trafficking is one in which they have absolutely acquiesced. Have
0: uh, how with Thailand and China do they have laws on the book uh, uh, about human trafficking and uh, and and the sorts of things that uh, are talked about in the international? Uh, bodies
2: and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I trace a lot of um, the recent arrival of anti-trafficking to the 2000 United Nations Palermo Protocol, which did ask all UN member nations to pass nationwide legislation on human trafficking. So in 2008, China and Thailand both passed um, national plans of action around human trafficking in their own countries. Thailand's law is relatively similar to the United Nations law, as it um, it writes about exploitation in a range of slavery-like conditions for both sexual and non-sexual forms of labor exploitation. But in China, it's interesting because they've restricted uh, human trafficking to be something that can only happen to women or children. And uh, for the purposes of forced labor, forced prostitution and forced marriage, so notably it excludes trafficking of men and trafficking for the purposes of labor exploitation.
0: Right, right. Um, what about the uh, uh, are there uh, the forms of control that uh, that workers in these programs are s- subjected to? Are, I assume that, uh, they're expected to take part in the religious practice of the organizations. Are they like monitored when they're not at work? Those sort of things.
2: Religious practice is very creatively calculated into the wage. So in Thailand, workers begin the day by with an hour of Christian worship, and so they first must clock in to uh, work, and then they head over to the nearby church for for church worship. So pay to pray. It is, and I think that it would be fair to call it such because you are not permitted, you have no option to uh, bow out of religious worship. Similarly in China, um, the organization will often claim in the United States when it's selling jewelry that uh, participants are not required to participate in Bible study, which usually happens Hmm. maybe like an hour before lunch. But what's interesting is that workers are required to make jewelry through the hour if they choose not to attend. So none of the workers really considers it to be a choice. It would actually be a choice if it were Bible study or or free time, right, sure. but it's Bible study or manual labor. And right. so almost all attend, though um, none have converted in China.
0: Now, the work that you're doing, how does it make you uh, reconsider or just think about the current policy debates over human trafficking and and, and the idea of modern slavery and, and that.
2: Human trafficking receives so much funding, media attention, um, attention from students, from academic institutes. I am mainly concerned about the unintended consequences of all this favorable attention that human trafficking has gotten. And I would say you don't need to look very far. You just need to talk to any sex worker or sex worker rights organization to understand how their lives and their work have been negatively impacted by the arrival of anti-trafficking programs. I work really closely with a Thai sex worker rights organization called the Empower Foundation in Thailand. And they have absolutely, I mean, they have documented extensively uh, all the different ways in which Thai sex workers now once arrested once they are arrested are subject to new forms of um, disciplinary control rehabilitation but all under the guise of rescuing victims of trafficking and so numerous scholars have demonstrated this as well that sex workers are asking over and over for rights not rescue and I would mm-hmm. say that this entire movement has overwhelmingly focused on different kinds of rescue schemes, rescue and identification schemes that have increased the surveillance and policing of sex workers, migrant workers, particularly those um, uh, in, in precarious situations. And this isn't something that just happens abroad. These logics travel back to the United States. And so we see this kind of uh, vigilante racism and policing emerging in cities like Providence, where I work now, or Los Angeles, where I used to work, where individual civilians are taking to the streets in predominantly immigrant um, neighborhoods and trying to identify victims of trafficking Hmm. that they see in public.
0: Uh, in the case of uh, Thailand and China, what do you think would be more effective means of addressing, you know, some of the real, real issues that that these women face?
2: So China is seeing some of the largest attempts of labor protest uh, ever, and the government is really heavily cracking down on these. These are protests against working conditions across like manufacturing factories in in the South, and I think we really need to be asking the question of why in an era of so much excitement about human trafficking, all of these day-to-day instances of migrant labor abuses that people are protesting against are not consumed under that category. Right. So I think that... Um, I would love for this intervention to shed light on some of the inconsistencies, that we can be so celebratory about what we've done to rescue people. Yet, over and over again, the people who count, the workers um, who are advocating for their lives, their lives are are not changing much at all. I think the one thing that is changing is the self-satisfaction of American rescuers. Well,
0: that's certainly (laughs) important, too. Uh, And finally, I guess I, you know... um, what do you think of the efficacy of of using terms like slavery uh and abolition uh as as kind of a critical means a theory of uh of uh discussing uh human trafficking or you know sex work and and other forms of 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 forced labor is it does it make sense to you or is it
2: It's absolutely a question that I think about so much, particularly as I run a human trafficking research cluster through Brown's Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice, and as I'm so lucky to have this one-month fellowship at the GLC here. And something, a position that I um, am quite hesitant about sometimes because I do believe that I do I do not like to use the term modern day slavery. I think that the overuse of this term to be equated with human trafficking is a complete um appropriation of you know generations of activism and scholarship around historical forms of slavery, transatlantic slave trade into um the United States just just one. And I think that it's dangerous because modern-day abolitionists, as they call themselves, um, like to invoke a lot of the guilt around historical slavery while not really interrogating the problematic racial politics and the hierarchies that lie in contemporary rescue efforts. So I think that we have to be very, very careful when we throw around the term modern-day slavery, and that it's really, really important to look at the historical connections, but also disconnects, between human trafficking and something like the transatlantic slave trade. But ultimately, if we are able to look to the continuities across, like, the labor process or across different kinds of abolition, then we do have a really wonderful historical model and a lineage of scholarship with which to guide new analytic frames.
0: Well, thanks so much for, uh, for agreeing to spend some time t- talking to us about your work. Uh, and it's uh, been a pleasure having you here in New Haven at the center. You're not that far away, so I'm sure we'll be seeing more of you. Uh, And just before you leave, uh, just for listeners, could you recommend some books uh, for those that are interested in learning more about this? Uh, uh, Of course, one will be your book, which will be out in
2: 2017, 2018. It's a slow, slow process. Um, I would love to recommend three different resources put together by really wonderful sex worker rights activists. Um, The first is a report called Hit and Run by the Empower Foundation, and that's the organization, the sex worker rights organization that works in Thailand that I mentioned earlier. That report is available online if you do a quick um, search. Also, they have a wonderful advocacy video. You can find it on YouTube called The Last Rescue of Siam, and it's a wonderful parody of a human trafficking rescue gone wrong, Hmm. and they're so creative and sharp to make this they made it in like a black and white charlie chaplin style um, so that they wouldn't have to deal with translation so it's a silent film and you have uh, thai and english subtitles so it's a wonderful teaching tool Uh, next i'd love to recommend carol lee's anti-trafficking industrial complex readings. Uh, Carol has compiled a really beautiful essay that draws in so many different links and additional resources uh, and can be found under a quick Google search. And then uh, lastly, Koyama, eminism.org, E-M-I-N-I-S-M, has a really great number of resources that deal with uh, sexual politics, gender rights, sex worker rights as they relate to trafficking.
0: Well, thanks so much. We'll we'll have uh, more information about those resources uh, on our website. Uh, It's been great talking to you, uh, and uh, I hope you've had a great time here.
2: Thank you so much, Tom, and thanks to the GLC for being such generous hosts. It's been fantastic being a part of this community, and I don't want October to end.
0: Uh, Well, it's been nice having you, and it's uh, so nice of you to come and speak with us. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tom.
1: Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.